are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. Anything's possible. Live from the outskirts of a global pandemic, <laughs> it's the 252 Sports Talk Radio is done by academics like Chris Gertz, Sam Mulberry, and applying hand sanitizer to my hands, it's Chris Moore. Are you touching your face, Chris Moore? Not even a little bit. Okay. I feel like I should not touch the mic to my face. This, I, I'm holding it slightly back. Sound? Yes, it's the middle of COVID-19 world uh, here oh. at Bethel University. We have not yet closed down anything, but... Yet seems to be the operative word. Yes, matter of time. We're actually about to go on spring break, so we will see what happens. We can make that. In 10 days. Uh, so before we get to our other stuff, we did want to talk a little bit about the novel coronavirus or COVID-19, the disease that comes from it. And uh, I think we've all started to see some effects on the world of sports. What are mm-hmm. some ways that COVID is affecting the sports world here? And I know, Chris, you're going to talk about elsewhere later. You're going to talk right. about Italian soccer before we're done. But Can I jump in with breaking news? Oh, sure. Yeah. So just a push alert on my phone, just as we started recording, suggests the NBA is exploring a plan to continue to hold games with fans, but to move all the games to cities not currently affected by COVID-19. Whoa. Into like D-League arenas or what? Or just to reallocate games to places, to maybe even professional teams, venues that... It's like move out of LA, New York, Seattle. Exactly. A lot more games in Oklahoma City, I guess. I guess so. There we go. Thank you for picking up on that. Ah, interesting. I I had heard that LeBron James had walked back his promise not to play if there are no fans to play. Right. I assume he has contractual obligations, actually. I would think he does. Yeah. Right. As powerful as he is. Even he can't change that. So that's interesting. I mean, I think the other one we've heard is at least... uh, some NCAA conference tournaments, or like so, the Division Three tournament had some games without fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe uh, the Ivy League has canceled its tournament and just declared its conference season winners to be right. the conference champions. Um, yep. Any other conference tournaments being affected? I haven't heard. Any. I was after Ohio State um, um, shuttered itself yesterday. I was interested to see how the Big Ten tournament would proceed, but it looks like that's going to be played at least as of right now. And certainly, as far as we know, right now March Madness will continue as scheduled with fans mm-hmm. right now. In class the other day, uh, Dr. Moore, you asked our students, would they rather, would they watch essentially a March Madness without fans or at that point, would they rather not have it? Right. And what our students The vast that? majority said they would be just fine watching on TV with, without fans. And only a few said, no, go ahead and cancel. Now, I, see, I should say the only thing the NCAA has decided so far is they're limiting um, interaction between players and coaches and the media. Yes. So, which is a very closing. minor move. But yeah, they've, they've kind of cleared out the locker rooms. Now, Sam, you're about as big a March Madness fan. Absolutely. Anyway, no. Would you watch an NCAA tournament that did not have fans in the arenas 100 percent. no i actually think it would be fascinating to see like what how does the energy of a game change i also think it would be a an interesting challenge for uh the people producing it on tv to say okay well how do we how do we do fan interaction when there aren't fans here Hmm. um what does a game sound like in an empty Hmm. gym um presumably you'd still have announcers you'd still Hmm. have some of that stuff so actually yeah i think it'd be fascinating and i so i would i would and i love basketball and basketball as much as the fans interact and all this stuff, I actually think a lot of guys 
a lot of athletes block that stuff out too. Yeah. So yeah. So I was reading an article today in the Chronicle of Higher Education about uh, what all this means for colleges, because obviously a lot of them are canceling face-to-face classes, moving online, and one of their tech reporters suggested this could be the black swan moment for higher ed. Something unexpected happens that causes a massive change in how we do education. Hmm. Now I think it's as likely what we'll realize is students actually hate this, <laughs> and we see the value of face-to-face, but. Could this actually have long-lasting effects on sports? What if we realize athletes are perfectly fine without fans there? The TV experience actually is fine. People still watch in large numbers. Uh, I mean, I don't think we're moving towards a fanless world, but... Right, because there's still money to be made in arenas. To some extent, yeah. Yeah. But like, what if we started just populating arenas with luxury boxes and don't even have mass seating anymore? Um, We've built a lot of stadiums that are going to have to change but uh, could there be any long-term effects or is this simply a stopgap we're gonna figure it out until the epidemic stops i mean who knows but i would say stopgap i would say that 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 i think um there will be this if 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 we're approaching you know a month or even a couple months where this is what happens uh with sporting events i think there will be the then the great victorious return to arena i mean what we might actually see is attendance go way up at things mm-hmm. it'll be like we're back yep you know mm-hmm. yeah Okay, well, speaking of watching things on TV, we had three uh, to see last time. Now, the first one, I think we already have declared worth the watch because we did a whole podcast episode about the Mayak Women's Basketball Championship. I think the only update there is that Bethel ended up going out in the first round of the NCAA tournament against Bethel. Uh, it was Lutheran. a tough loss. It was a tough it was loss. Very tough. Uh, Sam, what about Minnesota high school basketball? I said that you should watch uh, the Hopkins uh, girls basketball team against uh, Minnetonka, the last regular season game, because of Paige Buchers. Hopkins top Minnetonka seventy-seven to forty-nine. Buchers had twenty points, along with two rebounds, eleven assists, and nine steals. Yeah, does Hopkins uh, have a chance to go? Is it two straight undefeated? Seasons? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. So they're 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 burning through the tournament right now. So, um, yeah. So I would say definitely worth the watch. Paige put on a show one steal short of a the odd triple double yeah. with steals. Uh, Chris Moore said we should watch Wilder versus Fury two. Uh, Tyson Fury defeated Deontay Wilder uh, by technical knockout in the seventh round. Uh, Chris, uh, everybody I listened to who talked about the, who talked about this, I don't know mm-hmm. anybody who saw the fight actually, but listening to podcasts of people talking about yep. it, uh, loved it. They thought it was a, that was a great fight. Good fight, yeah. Yeah. So let me just ask you guys something here. So I uh, I want to talk a little bit about just in very broad terms the history of boxing. Mm-hmm. At one time. Um, hundred years ago, boxing was one of the two premier sports, uh, in, in, in the United States. And boxing has long been a very popular sport in the United States and remained a popular sport really through the 1970s. But then through a confluence of events, uh, has begun to decline in popularity. And I think a couple of those things we point to is that American society and cultural mores have changed. We've become somewhat more averse to just overt violence. Not entirely. Obviously, uh, um, uh, mixed martial arts and other sorts of sports have, have filled in some of those gaps. But in addition, I think boxing has gotten tainted with uh, portrayals of corruption, mm-hmm. um, the, the taint of gambling um, and organized crime um, really dealt some death blows to the, to the sport. And uh, after Mike Tyson, who was probably the last true international celebrity uh, heavyweight, the sport entered into a fallow period. Now, I should note that it has actually improved since then. So although the sport has declined compared to any historical notions, uh, the, the early 2000s were the, were the real nadir of, of uh, heavyweight boxing. 
But even so, most people on the street, if polled, wouldn't have known who Wilder and Fury were in fact, prior to this fight. When you brought this up to me, um, I asked you if these were heavyweights. Because yeah. you said the names, and I was like, I, I don't know who those right. folks are. But then something weird happens. Here's my question. During the time that this fight happens, we really, the sports world turns its lonely eyes to this heavyweight bout. What is about, why is that? Why under certain kinds of circumstances, people don't follow horse racing, but for a, a hot minute, everyone cares his attention to the Kentucky Derby. Um, everyone pays attention when there's a big heavyweight boxing match as if it was still very popular. Is there a, f- a way to explain that phenomenon? I mean, I think the 21st century explanation would be ESPN needs something new. Like, oh, so, the, so this is manufactured. The, well, yeah, I mean, it gives you something to, I mean, I'm just it's got to be fun to cover that as a break from your usual just cycle of endless highlights from mm. leagues that go on for four to six months at a time. I mean, like, historically, I think what I said in class when we talked about this month ago is that there's something not just of sporting significance, but often of perceived societal, cultural, religious, even civilizational significance of mano y mano, mm. right? You, you mm. concentrate all of our anxieties and our passions on this match between two people, and they're going right. to slug it out in the same way that you know, ancient armies of yore would settle things between two champions. I don't know if they actually- Yeah, I, I also would say I think um, the sea of the same phenomena with, like, the 100-meter dash at the Olympics, like, mm-hmm. I don't follow track and field but that's appointment viewing for me at the olympics i also think another part of boxing is that boxing was an early adopter of pay-per-view so mm-hmm. when you got into the the late 80s 90s early 2000s that was really the only way to see boxing so yep. they're getting they're making a lot of money but it's their the, the audience is very limited so you actually need a big thing to sell in order to break past the people who would buy every boxing pay-per-view to have like a big, uh, sort of a big thing. Go ahead. No, I I mean, I wonder if it's an economics of scarcity. I mean, it's it's precise. I mean, I know there are many other matches, but they don't, it doesn't seem like that to us. We're not paying attention to that. And so, because it, I mean, it's almost like the Olympics then in a sense of like, Mm -hmm. it's something, if it happens. It's been 18 months, time to watch another boxing match. Yeah, there's something like that. I mean, the same way the, the version of that with just regular sports leagues is the NFL. Because it's once weekly, it's different than, oh, there's a baseball game. What a surprise. Yeah. And, and you also have people like like in that, that nadir moment. I mean, that's the Klitschko era. Exactly. They were, they were technically proficient, great boxers, but it's pretty boring. Like it right. was, there were no exciting Klitschko fights. Right. This was an exciting fight. And I'll just say really quickly that I think some of the things you're saying resonate with this explanation. A lot of the write-ups of the of the Tyson Fury, uh, Deontay Wilder fight focused on the narratives and the leading into the fight rather than technicalities of the fight itself. Even though it was a very exciting fight, they really didn't focus on the fact that uh, Fury really capitalized on his, exp- his um, superior reach and was able able to land punches continually on on Wilder that that Wilder couldn't counter. But rather they focused on was the fact that Fury had beaten drug addiction, had beaten suicidal ideation, mm-hmm. um, and and really had lost maybe as much as 100 pounds just to get back into fighting shape mm-hmm. to actually have this fight. That was a much bigger portion of the sort of the write-ups than the actual technicalities of the fight itself. So, Chris, you mentioned one explanation that's given often for the decline of boxing in terms of mass appeal is changing mores about what's acceptable level of violence in sports. Yeah. Right? But you also mentioned mixed martial arts. Mm-hmm. How, how do you reconcile those two things? Is mixed martial arts actually not all that popular and it's got a kind of niche audience that maybe doesn't say things about the larger kind of sporting audience? Or does that undercut the thesis that we simply are averse to 
public displays of competitive violence? I think there's two factors running simultaneously here. I think that for a large portion of the American population, there is there is an increased aversion to violence that we even see impinging upon football now. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there is a, a, a more violence-acceptant portion of the American population who – if they're going to accept violence, why would they want to limit it simply to Queen's Rules boxing? Mm-hmm. And wouldn't they rather see people who can also kick and and tackle as well? And I think that's a um, that's why there's been a growth of mixed martial arts within that niche population. Okay. Uh, well, that's going to be it for our first segment. We just want to touch on a couple of things from current events and save some time for our second segment. We've got a special guest coming online to talk with us about uh, kind of a topic from the class right now. Our students are in the middle of a simulation around a city building or not building an NFL and or an MLS stadium. So we want to talk to someone who's been involved in those kinds of projects. We're going to talk to Jason Jennings of Mortensen Construction, which is a big co- a company that's done many arena stadium projects. He's going to talk to us in segment two right after this break. This week in sports history. Cincinnati, Ohio, March 11th, 1901. A local newspaper reports New York Giants manager John McGraw has signed a Cincinnati native named Charlie Tokahama, a Cherokee Indian. In reality, Tokahama is an African-American second baseman named Charlie Grant. When owners object to this violation of baseball's so-called color line, McGraw is forced to send Grant home. Minneapolis, Minnesota, March 11, 1941. Football Hall of Famer Bronco Nagurski continues his second sports career, defeating Ray Steele to regain his National Wrestling Association heavyweight title. He loses three months later and comes out of retirement in 1943 to play football again with the Bears. Montreal, Quebec, March 13, 1918. The Toronto Blue Shirts defeat the Montreal Canadiens to win the first championship in history of the National Hockey League. Later in the month, Toronto defeats a team from Vancouver to win the Stanley Cup, which didn't become an NHL-only competition until 1926. Greensboro, North Carolina, March 14, 2010. Duke knocks off Georgia Tech 65-61 to win the ACC title and the number one seed in the NCAA tournament. Led by guard John Shire and forward Kyle Singler, the Blue Devils roll to coach Mike Krzyzewski's fourth title, holding off Cinderella Butler at the buzzer in the championship game. Butler has no timeouts. So they would hope that Zubek makes this. Not going to try. It's Hayward pulling it down. Getting around Zubek at midcourt. Launches the shot. Oh, and almost went in. Almost went in. And Duke is the king of the dance. 2010. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Okay, we're back for segment two this week on the 252. We're now joined on the phone by Jason Jennings of Mortensen Construction here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Happy to, uh, happy to be here. So uh, we'll talk about the specific work Jason and his company do and why that relates to uh, what we're doing in class right now, which is stadium design and construction debates. But let's, as usual, start with uh, what's your sports story, Jason? Were you an athlete, fan? Um, how would you tell the story of your involvement of sports uh, even before yeah. you got to Mortensen? Yeah. 
Yeah, um, so definitely more fan than athlete. I'm probably a JV at best high school level athlete, okay. uh, but I've always been a big fan of sports growing up. Um, so I always considered that as a potential career path. But uh, coming out of college, I ended up working in a for a corporate strategy construction firm. Uh, sorry, 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 corporate strategy consulting firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, got my MBA uh, and then ended up working for a series of brand management and also uh, uh, consumer and industrial products companies and took a call from an executive recruiter who mentioned that um, they had a company locally uh, that w- had built stadiums uh, mm-hmm. had ever considered working in a con- for a construction company. I said, mm-hmm. no. <laughs> I heard of the company. The name was Mortensen. I said, yes. Have you ever considered working in sports? And I said, absolutely. Uh, so I ended up uh, taking a bunch of interviews and uh, joining the company about three and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am, as you mentioned, Chris, in the sports entertainment group um, mm-hmm. where we build stadiums and arenas and ballparks for um, uh, for the professional teams in the U.S. as well as uh, uh, large colleges, and uh, my particular role is working on the technology systems inside of those stadiums. So, Jason, before mm-hmm. coming to Mortensen, had, had, had your business career had anything to do directly or indirectly with sports, or was this the first time you were encountering sports as a business? Truly the first time I was encountering sports as a business. I'd always followed the um, uh, the stories on, you know, on ESPN or whatever and all the media channels, and I not only read the um, game recaps, but I also was interested in the business side mm-hmm. of things, and I've mm-hmm. always just been really interested in stadiums themselves, the cathedral, modern cathedrals, uh, they're these beautiful, mm-hmm. uh, high-tech, advanced structures, and that was always interesting to me, and having a chance to join a company that actually built them was a super exciting opportunity I really couldn't say no to. I bet. So just tell us, uh, what are what are a couple of projects that Mortensen is currently working on, recently finished in the sports stadium arena world? Yes, we are currently uh, part of a joint venture that is building the new uh, stadium for the Las Vegas Raiders, soon to be Las Vegas Raiders, mm-hmm. uh, Legion Stadium. Okay. Uh, we recently completed uh, Chase Center for the Golden State Warriors, also as part of a joint venture. Um, locally here in the Twin Cities, we uh, built U.S. Bank Stadium for the Vikings, also built, uh, recently completed um, Allianz Field for Minnesota United, mm-hmm. uh, and then also built uh, a few years ago uh, TCF um, Bank Stadium for uh, for the Gophers. So we are quite active in the Twin Cities as well as nationally mm-hmm. uh, building stadiums and arenas and ballparks for um, uh, uh, for teams. Sure. Uh, now we should make clear this is not the only thing Mortensen builds. Uh, for example, we're recording at Bethel University. Mortensen has built uh, our student commons, at least one dorm. Uh, it's built other schools. What other kinds of projects does Mortensen work on that aren't sports related? Yeah, we uh, work on sort of two big buckets of projects. One would be, like you're mentioning, we call that vertical construction, okay. uh, where we're building um, commercial buildings, commercial um, structures for corporate educational healthcare clients. So we'll build hospitals, we will build um, large multifamily for institutionals, um, customers like like schools or universities. Uh, we will also build. Um, uh, large warehouses or uh, industrial facilities for uh, manufacturers. Um, we will build uh, commercial office buildings for uh, developers or for corporate clients. So we call that vertical construction. Mm-hmm. The other thing we will also build is um, uh, utility-scale um, renewable energy facilities. So mm-hmm. we are setting upon the year either the largest or second largest builder of uh, solar farms or wind farms uh, for uh, utilities um, or for developers in the U.S. Interesting. So we have a portfolio of projects. Sure. The company is generally organized around geographic offices. So we have mm-hmm. an office in Minneapolis, Denver, Seattle, um, Portland, um, Milwaukee, Chicago, and Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And that's typically where we serve our uh, that commercial vertical construction. Um, and then we have our renewable energy group is based here in Minneapolis. 
and also has an office in San Antonio, Texas, and we will service our utility clients or our um, energy clients out of those two offices. So because uh, Mortensen... Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, my fourth group is unique in that yep. we're based here in Minneapolis, but we will build nationally. And that's mm-hmm. kind of a unique sort of, uh, we would put that in the vertical construction side of things. Mm-hmm. That's kind mm-hmm. of a unique um, opportunity for us here. So because you do, the company has such a wide variety of projects, it makes for interesting comparisons. How are, how are sports stadiums similar to and different from um, commercial construction, wind farms, college dorms? What, I mean, what, in what ways is a stadium just like any other construction project? And in what ways is a very different kind of experience? Yeah, well, it's uh, very similar uh, to general construction, the general vertical construction, in the sense that the contracting, con- uh, contracting structures between um, us as the general contractor and the owner are very similar. Um, the trades are mostly similar. We hire electricians, plumbers, drywallers, iron workers. Um, those are generally similar. There are some specialized things that are basically only in stadiums, like, for example, seats um, mm-hmm. or um, what we call uh, rakers and things like our stadia. Um, but generally very similar. Um, the way it's different is uh, typically if there is a stadium being built in um, in a city, it's the highest profile project uh, for that uh, uh, that municipality or for mm. that uh, locality. So there are many more eyes paying attention to the building of the stadium relative to say, the building of, say, a hospital. And, you know, on a mm. sure scale of things, a very large hospital mm-hmm. is roughly the same size as like a major league soccer stadium. But mm. typically you don't get headlines in the paper about challenges you're having in the building of a hospital, and you'll definitely get them if the MLS stadium's having challenges. So there's many more eyes on the public um, uh, structures that are stadiums because they are, like I'm saying, modern cathedrals. Um, many more people are paying attention to those than you might see for some of the commercial projects. So Jason, let me jump off of that and ask you, so from the perspective of the, the constructing company, how much do those extra eyes play a role in how you respond and how you and how you're undertaking the project itself i assume you're responding more to citizens fan concerns uh governmental concerns responding to what citizens are concerned about um how does that affect the process of actually making the project well, I say um, we get many more inbound media requests mm. um, asking for interviews with our project teams. Uh, for example, if you wanted to YouTube um, the Raiders project, uh, we have a series on YouTube called From the Ground Up that we work closely with the Raiders media team on producing that. Um, so, And there'll be interviews of the project managers and superintendents and all the folks on the team kind of going through the building process. You typically wouldn't see that for a hospital. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's typically what we do. Um, the media attention is sort of inbound. And then as far as fan concerns, um, typically those are channeled through uh, our customer, the team. Um, and we will respond to their perceived understanding of their fan needs as mm. part of the construction process. Now, what we will also do is help bring widen their aperture to think through things they may not have thought about uh, based on our experience. Mm. The interesting thing about stadiums is that typically, if you're even if you're a billionaire owner, you're maybe going to build one of these in your life. Mm. Uh, so you're very nervous about this. Um, you could be very successful in other paths of your career in life, but this is a really big project for you, not only because of the media scrutiny, but because you've only done it once. Sure. Versus we do, you know, two or three projects of that scale, you know, every other year, every year kind of thing. So we have a lot of expertise to offer in helping guide them through that particularly tricky process. So you said the the Raiders have this series called From the Ground Up, and I wondered if you could walk us through, essentially from the ground up, how this process works. Now, Mortensen comes in after you know the city has made the decision to build this, but um, early on, 
uh, what are some of the trade-offs that uh, that cities, uh, the teams uh, have to think through when they're when they're negotiating the funding of a stadium, the size, the scale of a stadium, whether to build it in the first place? What what are some of the decisions that have made before Mortensen even gets involved in the in the project? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, I would say, if from the team's perspective. Um, one of the big choices you have to make is if you're an existing team, do you want to renovate your existing venue or do you want to build a new one? Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of benefits or drawbacks to each approach. Often depends upon your lease that you have, whether it's with the city that currently owns it, that may own the stadium or you're in partnership with, um, whether you think it's a good lease and can you renew it in terms that makes sense. Is the stadium itself um, an iconic structure? Mm-hmm. Like it's hard to imagine the Cubs playing any place else other than Wrigley Field. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, you know, is it um, sort of hollowed ground? for the city and or typically for college we see that mm-hmm. you know um, you know for example University of Georgia like it'd be a hard time and have time moving away from the hedges kind mm-hmm. of thing so mm-hmm. sometimes the ground itself is hollowed ground so moving isn't really an option mm-hmm. now if you do choose to um, to move as a team you typically have a trade-off between do I want to privately finance this Right? Or do I want to get take public financing? Mm-hmm. Um, private financing is growing as a trend in the industry. It's been growing pretty dramatically for the last um, decade or so. Uh, because if you take public funding uh, in any form to build your stadium, uh, typically there are lots of strings attached to that funding. And you may or may not want those strings attached. So you have to, as an owner, think of yourself, um, do I want to have, how much control do I want to have over this process? And how much financing can I bring to the table? And would if I can't bring in the full financing to the table, am I willing to take on the public as a partner? And if so, am I willing to, to deal with the strings attached to that? Right? Sure. Now, if you privately finance, you have complete control over everything. You know, you can you have control over the days you use a stadium, maybe you can book it out to, you know, concerts or whatever it might be, and then you collect the revenue from that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go down the public side of things, you may not have necessarily control over all those dates, and that may, may make this a less attractive investment for you. Mm-hmm. You might Makes also sense. choose to have this, the city build it entirely for you, and you're just a tenant of the city's building. Um, so all these things are coming to mind. You have to make that trade-off as an owner between do you want to privately finance or publicly finance. If you publicly finance, do you want to contribute or not? If you do contribute, how much? And if you don't contribute, am I willing to deal with being a tenant in a building? that uh, versus owning it sure so yeah. let's say a city has made this and its team all the decisions have made mortensen has uh, been brought in um but you have partners you're working with right so like at the design level you're working with i assume architects and with the team um can you take us maybe through design into what are some of the challenges that go into the actual construction yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you, let's say you made the decision, I'm going to move and I'm going to do privately finance. It's cleaner to think mm-hmm. of the private finance options. Typically, um, and this is a great uh, challenge in our industry, if you're the owner, you typically think of hiring the architect first to help you think, conceptualize what is your aesthetic vision for the stadium. Mm-hmm. The architect, you pay the architect to develop some drawings for you. And usually they're beautiful renderings, um, with really cool views of the skyline. And then <laughs> at a certain point, you turn to the architect and said, how much will this cost to build and how long will it take? That's not necessarily the architect's expertise. Uh, at that mm-hmm. point, the owner tends to think really hard about, oh, I need to hire a general contractor or a builder to help me think about taking these buildings, bringing these drawings to life, yep. right? Sometimes you may choose to do that directly, like you've known Mortensen for a long time, maybe you've worked with them on a previous project, you were the CEO of a big company and they built your headquarters. Mm -hmm. You might call Mortensen directly and say, hey, I've been working with an architect, help me through and um, you know, evaluate these drawings. 
Sometimes the owner may say, you know what, I want you to partner directly with the architect. We would call that a design-build relationship. Sometimes okay. the owner hires the architect directly and then hires us separately. And sometimes they say, I want you and the architect to be in the same contract. We're hiring you as one entity, right? Um, sometimes the owner may not have experience in the space and may say, instead, I want to run um, a request for proposals, uh, RFP process, where multiple builders compete to build the drawings. Mm-hmm. So all these are different options you might have as an owner to pick on how you engage as a engage a builder. Um, what I'd say is not common, and many people think this is the way that it works, is that, and this is not common in the sports world, I should say, very rarely do the buildings, are the drawings complete, mm-hmm. and then we are what's called hard bidding on those drawings. In that case, it's very, very common in other municipal construction, typically for a highway or something. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The drawings are complete, and all the contractors are bidding on finishing those, uh, building the drawings as uh, as they're completed, and whoever has the lowest bid wins. Mm-hmm. That's typically not how it works in the stadium world. Typically, the drawings are anywhere between 25 to 75% complete. Mm-hmm. You hire us or an, our, our competitors mm-hmm. to help bring the drawings to 100% completion. We then turn around and say, okay, we may point out to the architect, oh, you forgot something, like, oh, you forgot gutters in the building, or oh, you, <laughs> you misunderstood how the actual structure, the site of the building itself, there's interesting geotechnical challenges you need to work through. Sure. We will then co-work with the architect to bring those drawings to 100% completion, and then we tell the owner, it'll take you exactly this long exactly this much, um, this cost this much to build it, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So we then turn around and provide what's called a guaranteed maximum price. Mm-hmm. We find them a firm schedule against the drawings that we've helped comment on. And is this the point, we should turn to what you specifically do, is mm-hmm. this when uh, maybe you have expertise to offer on um, what the fan experience can look like? Um, maybe we can turn, like, how is, maybe I should actually back up and say, how is the fan experience of stadiums changing? Like, fan expectations of what's involved uh, once you show up for a for a game, for a match? Yeah, that's a great question again. Um, there are a couple of things that have changed over the last um, couple of decades. Uh, one, it's the revenue generation capabilities of um, luxury spaces, so suites. Mm-hmm. Um, there are lots of words for it, but essentially not just the general admission seats. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. that has changed the fan experience. There are effectively two experiences that you're having. One is the general admission, for lack of a better word, in the bowl or in the upper deck. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, it's the uh, luxury spaces. Um, in either case, um, what the team owner and the teams are thinking about is how do I compete with the couch? Mm-hmm. Um, you've got, as a fan, have the option of watching the game at home, or do you want to take the long, arduous trek of come, leaving your couch, getting in the car, <laughs> finding parking, buying tickets? Risking food, COVID. Uh, yeah. Yes, all right. these things. Right. Uh, you get there, is your cell phone going to work? Can I send a mm-hmm. selfie to my friends on the I was there? Mm-hmm. All these things. So generally, the competition is with the couch. Mm-hmm. And to get people off the couch, we find that the architecture itself is getting ever more dramatic. Mm-hmm. The um, full what we call the adjacent development, the full experience of getting to the game is um, elevating. You're going to have retail spaces and mm-hmm. um, restaurants and bars and things like that surrounding the venue that are super exciting to go to. Mm-hmm. And then in the game itself, the, uh, at the, in the actual venue itself, um, the experiences around the retail, the food options, the beverages, um, this, the technology experience you have is getting ever elevated. Once again, you're always in competition with the couch. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're seeing is the biggest change in fan experiences. How can I make this and uh, a must-experience thing, especially for the casual fan. 
right? Mm -hmm. Someone who goes to maybe one game a year, two mm -hmm. games a year. Uh, how do you motivate them? So your diehards are going to go no matter what. Mm -hmm. They're going to buy season tickets and they'll go and they'll sit in normal seats. But it's that casual fan or that corporate fan. How do you elevate that experience to motivate them to go see a game? Okay. Well, Jason, we appreciate getting some insight from someone who's been part of this. It's it's helpful for our listeners. It's helpful for our students who are kind of doing a simulation related to this. So um, best of luck with current projects you're working on. And uh, thanks for taking time to talk to us. Thank you, Jason. No. Glad to help. Thank you. Okay. We'll be right back to finish up this episode. Get in touch with the show by emailing us at channel3900 at gmail.com. Okay, we're back to finish out this episode. Thanks again to Jason Jennings of Mortensen Construction for his time and his uh, expertise. Chris, kick us off three to see for the rest of March. Okay, so maybe I'm getting too cute with my recommendations, but here's another not to see. Don't check out Serie A, the Italian top-tier soccer league. Because of fears of transmission of COVID-19, the coronavirus virus, Serie A games will be played without fans behind closed doors until at least April 3rd. Incidentally, Lazio is two points ahead of perennial favorite Juventus in the table. If you want something else to watch instead, check out the 27-2 Dayton Flyers as they wreck shop in the A-10 tournament. Can they grab a one seat as a mid-major? I think Bracketology had them as the fourth one the last day. I'm so excited for the Flyers. Okay, Sam. I'm uh, running this one back from last year's script, but we are in the swing of horse racing season, and the world's richest thoroughbred stakes race with a purse of $12 million is coming up on March 28th, the Dubai World Cup. Can we insert a horsey sound at this point? <laughs> I'll this see is, what I can do. This is kind of your thing. <laughs> uh, the, cla the class of the field seems to be a horse that you might remember from last year's mm. Kentucky Derby, and he has a name to warm the heart of every historian, Tacitus. Uh. Tacitus came into last year's Derby with a three-way race winning streak, including first place finishes in the Tampa Bay Derby and the Wood Memorial. He ended up taking third in the Derby after maximum security was DQ'd. Tacitus <laughs> finished second in the Belmont and has finished in the money in eight of his ten starts. Alright, and this last one goes out to our friend Sarah Shady. We're still two months away from the Indy 500, but the 2020 schedule for IndyCar Racing starts on Sunday, March 15th with the Firestone Grand Prix in St. Petersburg. Series runs until September, but it helps to get off to a good start in Florida. Last year's winner, American Joseph Newgarten, went on to win his second IndyCar Drivers' Championship. By the way, Newgarten drives a Chevy, which has won six of the last eight races in St. Pete, but hasn't won the overall Manufacturer's Championship since 2017. Guys, which car manufacturer has won most of the most recent IndyCar Championships? Toyota? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, good guess, Chris. Fiat. Honda. Oh, oh, nice. I almost said Hyundai, but it's Honda. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, it's Honda and Chevy at this point. And Firestone wins all, they always have the tires. I don't know if they just have a monopoly. <laughs> I do drive a Hyundai, and it is nice. <laughs> you can enter. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for joining us on our, this is basically our pre-spring break slash pre-maybe Bethel closure. We might do more podcasts if we're not teaching right. face-to-face courses. So Daily 252. <laughs> we'll hope to see you oh. sometime, maybe in early April, to see if these three were worth the watch. Uh, but thanks again to Jason Jennings 
questions. Thanks, guys, for joining us. And we have another podcast to get to you soon. So do check out the rest of the Channel 3900 lineup. There's lots of good stuff on there. Chris, wrap us up. On behalf of my colleagues, um, please go Royals and wash your hands. <laughs>